morning, I want to welcome you to Brian Bible Church, and uh, this morning we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. We have been going verse by verse through Jude. Last week we looked at verse 7, which dealt with Yahweh's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and this brought up the subject of homosexuality, which we dealt with very briefly. So for our study today, I want to deal a little more in depth with this subject on Friday, June 26, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that the Constitution requires that same-sex couples be allowed to marry no matter where they live and that states must no longer reserve the right only for heterosexual couples. That's amazing they found this in the Constitution. They can't find any rights for unborn children in that Constitution, but they can find rights for people to be able to marry in that Constitution. This ruling set off a firestorm, all right, from both sides. One side, the sky is falling. They set this all, you know, Christians are just panicking over this. The other side saying, this is the best thing ever. This is the greatest thing that ever happened. As a Christian, were you shocked by that ruling? Did your faith maybe skip a beat? Did you question, how can this happen In a Christian country, I think we have to realize and we have to admit that our culture is moving from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. The culture today in America is not the culture I was born into. Very, very different culture. We are moving more and more away from anything spiritual, anything that has to do with the Lord. In 1973, was just a little over 40 years ago, The board of the American Psychiatric Association, under the pressure from the National Gay Task Force, changed its official position by declaring that homosexuality was not an illness. Now that means, up until 1973, the board of the American Psychiatric Association said that homosexuality was an illness. Our culture is quickly changing. Can you imagine if someone said that today? But before we get too discouraged, please understand that the church has always been countercultural. The first century church certainly was countercultural. And let me say that if your views are cultural, you need to start reading your Bible. Okay? You need to spend more time in it. If you were surprised by the court's decision or perhaps people's response to it, why are you? Are you expecting non-Christians To hold Christian values? If you believe that marriage is only between a man and a woman, and that homosexuality is a sin, would you expect people who don't follow Christ to embrace that? Why do we get upset that people who don't know Yeshua act like people who don't know Yeshua? Why is that strange for us? Why does that strike us as this is weird? you got a bunch of pagans running the country and you're upset that they make rules that go against Christianity? People, unsaved people live in sin. That's what unsaved people do. Our arguing with the unsaved about certain sins is not what we're called to do. I don't care if the sin is homosexuality, whatever it is. You don't go to people and say, that's wrong what you're doing. Everything they're doing is wrong. They don't know Christ. We have called to lovingly present the gospel of Yeshua the Christ to them. They need Him. Once someone trusts Christ, 
Then we can start dealing with the issue of sin. The issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, I think, has to be dealt with on two fronts. First of all, how do we deal with and treat unsaved homosexuals? Secondly, how do we deal and treat those who are Christians? Now, some say, can that be? Can a homosexual be a Christian? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Well, let's start with the definition. What is a homosexual? How would you define that? Well, let me give you a dictionary definition. Cambridge Dictionary defines it. A person, especially a man, who is sexually attracted to people of the same sex and not to people of the opposite sex. Based on that definition, is it a sin to be a homosexual? Can you help who you are sexually attracted to? What do you think? Can you help that? You have some control over that? I found that I don't. You know, I mean, you look at a certain person, you're either attracted to them or you're not. Why? Well, I don't know why. Because I ate something bad for breakfast? I, You know, why is it? You know? I don't think that being sexually attracted to a person of the same sex is a sin. So if this is a true definition of homosexuality then I would say homosexuality is not a sin. But, before someone grabs that soundbite, if you act on that attraction and engage in sex, that is a sin. See, most people use the term homosexual to refer to someone who is involved in homosexual sin. They would call them a practicing homosexual, okay? Which I think is a good term. They don't like that term at all, all right? I think this just confuses the issue because a person can be a homosexual, they can have desire for the same sex, yet they can remain celibate. And I think they can honor God. All right? So they're not sinning. If they have that attraction but don't act on it, they're not sinning. Attraction is not a sin. It's the act that is a sin. All right, so as not to confuse the issue, when I use the term homosexuality today, I'm going to be talking about a practicing homosexual because that's how most people view that term. When you say homosexual, they view it as someone practicing homosexuality. Well, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, you know, this this seems to be a sin that, that really gets people riled up. You know, there's a lot of sins, but this one really gets them riled up. And I think the reason it is is because it, it's there's a movement behind this sin. All right? There's a movement driving. There's a subculture. Homosexuals have a support network. What other sin do you know of that has a support network? You ever heard of a liar's bar where all the liars go to drink and hang out with other liars? <laughs> That's every bar, right? Uh, we don't see murderers marching in the street for their rights. You know? We don't see adulterers pride week. All the adulterers, let's go out and have a pride week. You know? Oh, we don't see that stuff. But the homosexual... They have a movement that is driving this thing. When did this movement start? Well, there's a dis, you know, disagreement on that, but I think most would say it began with Gay Pride Week in 1970, where 20,000 people marched in New York City alone. The movement is very organized. Its leaders are highly motivated. They're tactically trained. They're heavily financed. And they're skilled in communication, education, politics, and often even religion. And they are single-mindedly dedicated to one task. And that is making the homosexual lifestyle an integrated and acceptable part of the American culture. That's their agenda. 
They want to remove the restraints and just open the floodgates. In a matter of a few decades, the homosexual movement has measurably transformed the nation's perception on homosexuality. It's transformed it. It's made great strides toward disassociating homosexual behavior from sin and identifying it as a legitimate alternative lifestyle. And the reason they're, I think, advancing so rapidly is they have the full cooperation of the media. Okay? Television, movies, public schools. It's everywhere. See, if it's not a sin, then the restraints are gone and no one has to feel bad about anything and everybody, the floodgates are open. All right? And, and I see this today. I see that those who were once hostile to homosexuality, now they tolerate it. Those who once tolerated it, now embrace it. Most people, Christians included, have gradually been acclimated to the commonness of homosexual behavior, and it's just like, oh, that's just how it is. We have been, we are being desensitized to its unnaturalness and its sinfulness. And it is now socially acceptable to be homosexual. It's even more than acceptable, it's looked upon with favor. It's the kind of, I think, the in thing to be gay. You see so many kids in high school or, you know, even younger than that, kids in grade school say, I'm gay. They don't even know what a sexuality is yet, but they're, you know, this is a cool thing to be. And so everybody's just kind of jumping on the bandwagon. And anybody against it is a homophobe. The popularity and acceptance of homosexuality, I don't think should affect believers. And what I mean affect. I don't think we need to jump on the bandwagon of popular opinion. The only question we have to deal with is what does the Scripture, what does the Bible say about this thing? It doesn't matter what the rest of our culture is saying. It doesn't matter what everybody out there is pushing. We need to know and we need to stand on the Bible alone. And the sad thing is so many Christians today are caving. And so because they're caving... Then they're taking the Bible and saying, well, the Bible didn't really mean that, what it says there. Okay? And they're trying to take the scriptures and redefine them so they don't really say homosexuality is bad. Because, you know, they're Christians. They can't, they can't go against the scriptures. So they're redefining them. I see pastors doing this. I see Christians doing this. And they're just saying, no, I don't think it's wrong to be homosexual. I think we've had it wrong all this time. What does the Bible teach about same-sex marriage? Well, Genesis 2, I think it does teach something. Genesis 2, 23 and 24 says this. The man said, this is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is the joining of man and a woman in a covenant relationship. It was Yahweh who created the first couple. It was Yahweh who married the first couple. Marriage is, is God's institution. He, society didn't come up with this and say, hey, maybe we should have some kind of marriage contract, you know, uh, so people aren't so, you know, sexually permissive. Let's just, let's get a marriage thing. No, God invented this. And I think the term same-sex marriage is an oxymoron. If it's same-sex, it can't be married. Marriage is the joining of opposite sex. 
The way, the, the way in which the woman was created indicates that she is man's divinely designed complement. And that won't work with two men. Now, I don't think he meant to bring this out, but I'm going to use it this way. In his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, John Walton writes this, Adam's sleep has prepared him for a visionary experience rather than for a surgical procedure. The description of himself being cut in half and the woman being built from the other half, and he uses Genesis 2, he's talking about that. What Walton does when he goes into the text in Genesis here about the rib being removed, in the Hebrew it's more like, it's not a rib, it's not the side, he is literally cut in half, all right? That's the idea. So Walton says this is not something that physically took place. You know, this is a vision, and he's using the text and the language to show this is a vision that he had of woman being taken from him, or this, he's being ripped in half and woman being created from that other half. He goes, would refer not to something he physically experienced, but to something that he saw in a vision. So he sees this vision of being cut in half, and then woman made out of the other part. Walton goes on to say, all womankind is from the side of all mankind. And so he goes in to argue that being created from the dust is not something that is just true of Adam, it's true of all mankind. And it has to do with mortality. We come out of the dust, we go back to dust. Man is mortal. And he does the same thing with woman. All women are taken from man. Alright, he says marriage is being rejoined and recovering humanity's original state. This is what's happening when a man and woman join. You know, that half of Adam that was taken apart and turned into a woman, now it's being rejoined and they're becoming whole. This is the original state. Walton then states, Genesis 2.24 makes more of a statement than we had envisioned. Becoming one flesh is not just a reference to the sexual act. The sexual act may be the one that rejoins them, but it is the rejoining that is the focus. When man and woman become one flesh, they are returning to their original state. This does not allow for two men. That's not putting man back together. From the biblical perspective, marriage is only between a man and a woman. Only two people of the opposite sex can fulfill the procreative purpose of marriage. And this is kind of on, on a different subject, but, you know, you got to have a guy and a woman, okay, if you're going to continue to procreate. Now, it's interesting that so many will argue, well, that command to procreate was given to them and it's not given to us. I'm like, really? It's too bad your mom and dad didn't know that. Okay, you know, I, I I only know of one couple, one married couple that don't have children because it just seems like we get married, we have kids. You know, that's what people do. Why? Because that's what keeps the race going on, people. And see, you can't do that with two people of the same sex. Well, they can adopt from us, but they, they need us, basically, to keep things going, right? Most married couples get married, and they have children. Thankful. We all ought to be thankful for that. But see, it doesn't work the other way. Now, Justin Lee, who is the executive director of the great, the Gay Christian Network, and, and people, it's interesting, and there there's, was a debate on there between Justin and another guy, uh, you know, and the, they say they're Christians, and I have no reason to doubt them, you know, and, and one of the other guy that debated Justin was arguing for celibacy, he says, if you are homosexual, you must remain celibate. 
Homosexual marriage is not no such a thing, so therefore you're stuck with celibacy. That's your only choice. And Justin, on the other hand, argues from the other point. No, he thinks that, you know, as long as it's a... Well, we'll talk about that in a second here. But Justin says this. He says, it is certainly true... Remember, this is a gay Christian saying this. certainly true that God designed our bodies with heterosexuality in mind. Glad to hear that. That's how new human beings come into the world. Amen. Okay, no argument there. I don't think anyone can deny that heterosexual sex is the way our bodies were built to function. Amen again, right? But does that mean that using our bodies in any other way is sinful? Now, and then Justin gives this illustration. He goes, people are meant to hear. Some people are born deaf. If you're born deaf, then you learn sign language. He goes, the purpose of your hands is not for sign language, but is it okay to use them that way? I'm like, it is such a ridiculous argument. Listen, it's okay to use your body in any way you want to as long as it's not sin. As long as the Lord didn't say, don't do that. And so Justin, yes, the bodies of a man and a woman are meant to go together. And so is it wrong to do anything else? Yes, when the Bible says it's wrong, then it's wrong if you use it in another way. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that there's only one, listen, one moral, legitimate outlet for man's God-given sex drive. Marriage. That's it. That is it. And so that leaves homosexuals out. They can't get married because marriage is between a man and a woman. All right, let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. It is good for a man to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husbands. Now in chapter 7 here, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians wrote him. And Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. This does not refer to holding hands, putting your... I've heard this verse quoted so many times out of context, all right? Nothing to do with that. Touch is the Greek word, haptomai, and it means to attach oneself to, to apply oneself to. And it directly relates to sexual relationship within marriage. It's a euphemism for sexual relationship. We see it used that way throughout the Scripture. So to touch a woman is a euphemism for sexual relations, but it's also metonymy for marriage. So what he is saying here, he says, it is good for a man not to be married. That's what he's saying in this text. Alright? Now you say, well, why would Paul say that? Is Paul going against marriage? Doesn't he know that God says marriage is a good thing? Yeah, Paul knew marriage was a divine institution. He knew it was God who said it's not good for man to be alone. And that's an interesting statement in himself. Man was not alone. He had the creation around him. He had the animal kingdom. He had fellowship with God. And in fellowship with God, God says it's not good for man to be alone and he creates woman that tells me the importance of the man woman relationship paul is certainly not contradicting god about marriage all through the bible marriage is considered very highly uh, hebrews 13 4 says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled in the tanakh marriage is used to suggest the relationship between god and his people in the New Testament, between the Lord and His church, the Bible holds marriage on a very, very high level. And Paul is not arguing with that. Alright? He is simply saying, celibacy is good. 
And as you go through the chapter, Paul gives two reasons why he's saying it's good not to marry. In verse 26, he says it's because of the present distress. They were undergoing great persecution. And he says, because of the present distress, it's probably good if you're not married. And I think, guys, you can understand that. If you're going through a great tribulation, do you want to have to take care of a wife and protect her and go through all that? It'd much be better to do that alone. Secondly, he, he gives in verse 32, he says, because when you're married, you take on the responsibilities of the wife. Where if you're single, you got, you can serve the Lord with everything, full time. Alright? So what Paul's saying contextually is this. Considering your present circumstances, and considering the responsibilities within marriage, it's good not to marry. Now, the first principle, which is celibacy is good, must be held in balance with the second principle. The second principle is developed in verses 2 through 6, and simply stated, it's this, it's natural to marry. Paul's general rules lay down in verse 2 when he says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. Although there may be exceptions, there is no doubt as to what the norm is. Marriage is the norm. The verse makes it clear that God does not approve of either polygamy or homosexual marriages. I think this verse is very strong on that. Because of immoralities, here's what you do. Each man has his own, not husband, but wife. And each woman has not her own wife, but her own husband. Alright? That's how you prevent immoralities. You get married to someone of the opposite sex. That's what marriage is. And he defines it very clearly. Like I said, that rules out polygamy. Have his own, not wives, it's not plural, it's singular here. Have his own wife, have her own husband. Singular in both cases. So, you're having a problem with uh, temptation? Paul later in says it's better to marry than to burn. And he doesn't mean going to hell, okay? He's not talking about that at all. It's burn with passion. If you're having this burning desire, then the way you take care of that desire is you get married. And people say, is that why a person marries? To avoid fornication? That's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons given in Scripture. Paul's not giving us a doctrine of marriage here. He's speaking of the danger of sexual sin for those who are single. If you want Paul's doctrine of marriage, you go to Ephesians chapter 5. You will see he places a very extreme level on it. What he's doing here is he's answering a specific problem that was given in a specific question that was brought to him that was dealing with the situation at Corinth. Fornication was rampant. And he said, listen, because of immoralities, get married. And he makes it clear here what marriage is. A man and a woman. But in Corinth, temptation was abounded on every side. A man could, you couldn't walk down the streets of Corinth without being propositioned. It was just kind of like our internet today. Uh, what Paul is saying in this passage is the real solution to Corinth is just let every man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. God has instituted marriage as a safeguard against evil. It's not the lesser of two evil. It's the God-ordained safeguard against immorality. This would be a good place for Paul to endorse homosexual marriage if there was such a thing. He could have said, you homosexuals need to get married so you don't sin by having sex. Marry, find a man, get together, find a woman. Get, no, he didn't say that because that's not an option. He, very clear, husband, wife, that's it. Paul's purpose here is to stress the reality of sexual temptations to singleness and acknowledge that they have a legitimate outlet in marriage. So the Scriptures teach that marriage between a man and a woman 
all sexual activity outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage is sin. Okay, can I say that again? All sexual activity outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage is sin, whether it be homosexuality, whether it be fornication, polygamy, adultery, bestiality, all those are covered by Paul here. If you got sexual temptation, whatever it is, get married. Find someone compatible, get married. That's one of the purposes of marriage. Now, you know, like I said, people like to attack. The, today, Christians are attacking the Bible and they're saying these verses don't mean that. They come up with some other alternative meaning. But, well, let me just, one of the, I think that's a foolish argument to start with. Okay, but one of the ways I combat that is say, you know what? There's no examples of homosexual marriages in the scripture. Not one. Now, isn't that kind of strange? If God okayed it, if it wasn't really a bad thing, how come we don't see any examples of it at all? And they'll say, well, there is David and Jonathan. You know, they loved each other more than the level. That's so, that's not so nonsensical. It's not even funny, okay? And the reason there is no examples is because there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. There's none. And there's also no instructions in the Scripture on a homosexual relationship. Why wouldn't God give instructions about that? Justin Lee writes, I now believe that homosexual behavior is appropriate within the confines of a committed, loving, monogamous, lifelong, Christ-centered relationship. Well, the problem I have with that is he put homosexual behavior and a Christ-centered relationship together, and they don't go together, okay? But, but I like what he's saying. He realizes, at least, there's no outlet to his homosexuality unless he marries. But he's just confused that he thinks he can marry another man, and biblically, he can't support that, all right? You cannot support it. But at least he sees that, you know, promiscuous behavior, homosexual behavior is a sin. He says, essentially, I'm arguing that a Christ-centered marriage is a good thing, regardless of the gender of the people involved. Well, you can't have a Christ-centered marriage of two men or two women because the Bible speaks against that. And see, again... Why, if if the Lord did permit it, if it was allowed, and we got all the scriptures wrong to talk about homosexuality, how come he never gave instructions on how this gay marriage should work? We got instructions for husbands and wives, don't we? Husbands, here's what you do. Wives, here's what you do. We have instructions for parents and children. Parents, here's how you do it. Children, here's how you do it. We have instructions for slaves and masters. We have all kinds of instructions in the Bible on how to live together, but not one hint telling a lesbian couple or a homosexual guys how to live together because he doesn't permit it. So he doesn't give any instruction because he doesn't want you doing it at all. All right? It's forbidden. It's also interesting that the Bible teaches the elders must be the husband of one wife. Not the husband of another husband, but of one wife. People say, well, that's just for elders. No, Listen, every qualification that's listed for elders is listed there because the elders are to be a visible, physical, living example of what God wants all His people to be. So you look at the qualifications for an elder. That's how you're supposed to live. All of us are supposed to live that way. He wants His people to live holy. And homosexuality is unholiness. Now, what's the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, in our day, you got the media, you got educators, you got government agencies increasingly portraying homosexuality in a favorable light. 
And the, the most tragic part about this is the homosexual movement is being endorsed now by the church. In the literature of 40 years ago, it was really hard to find any serious defense of homosexuality by anyone who's a professing Christian. Anything at all. And I think this is important because how Christianity deals with homosexuality is of paramount importance to the homosexual movement. See, if the church is condemning it, then they're always got this idea that we're not quite doing the right thing. When the church accepts it, then it's like, wow, good. See, and we knew we were right. Church is on our side. I think the church still remains a powerful force. That's why they want so desperately for the church and the Bible to line up with what they're doing. Religion and morality have always been two sides of the same coin. And I don't think anything affects attitudes, behavior, or tolerance levels like religious beliefs. And if the church is on board, then they're good. How the church portrays it, I think, is going to have an effect on a lot of people. And it may be easy for us to conclude that it's just liberal churches that endorse homosexual lifestyle. On the contrary, the largest homosexual denomination in the country is the Evangelical Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches. The first Metropolitan Community Church was founded in Los Angeles, of course, in 1966 by Reverend Troy Perry, formerly our ordained Pentecostal minister and author of, here's the book he wrote, The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I'm Gay. In six years, Metropolitan boasted more than 39 chartered congregations and 43 missions and study groups with a combined membership exceeding 17,000. In 10 years, it grew to 67,000 and well over 100 locations across the world. All right? And their doctrinal statement, if you read it, soundly evangelical. They believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, salvation by grace alone. They promote evangelical outreach. They perform evangelical weddings with one twist. Most of the couples they marry are same sex. Tony Jones, who is an author and church leader of the emergent church movement. If you don't know much about the emergent church movement, you know, people say, I've heard uh, preterists say, they accept me there. I say, they accept everybody there. Okay, whatever you want to do is accept it. All right, here's what he writes. He believes gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, queer. Not sure what queer means. I'm not, not sure. I mean, I think you covered that and all the rest of them, all right? Individuals can and should live out their sexuality in and be blessed by the Christian church. This is a pastor, okay? Yes, we're going to bless. Not only we accept you, we bless you for what you're doing. Listen, I say that, Tony, you need to spend a little more time in your Bible. Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this issue. Because the church has to stand on the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. And I think one of the strongest condemnations of homosexuality is in Romans 1. All right? I'll tell you how they get around this passage in a minute. But Romans 1, 26 and 27. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty for their error. All right, first thing I want you to see here, it says that God gave them over. This is from the Greek paradokin, which is the first active indicative of paradidomai. It means to turn someone over to judgment. It is a verb 
that is put in the active voice stressing the activity of God. God is acting in a positive, overt move of judgment. Paul says this three times in Romans 1. God gave them over. Turning over to judgment. Well, what did He give them over to? Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Here Paul says that God gives them over to impurity. And the Greek word here is akath arsia, which literally means the contents of the grave. It came to mean rot, filth, decay. Uh, Its moral meaning has to do with sexual vice and sexual sin. He's thinking primarily refers to the perversion of the sexual area of life. So men are given over to sexual impurity as a judicial act of God. See, so often we have this backwards. We say, if God doesn't judge America because of homosexuality, He's got to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, i got news for you. It's not that because there's a, a lot of homosexuality, God needs to judge. God is judging. The homosexuality is a judgment, according to Romans 1. Man walks away from God. God says, you want to see depravity at its best? Go. Have it. And he turns a nation over to the judgment of sin. Paul said at the end of verse 24, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They pervert God's intended use of the body. They turn to fornication, sexual activity, sexual deviations. It just sounds like our society today. Sexual perversion is a judgment. It's God's will that we abstain from sexual sin. That is the will of God, Christian. You know, everybody's running around. I want to know what the will of God is. Give them this verse, all right? First Thessalonians 4, 3, and 5. This is the will of God. This is it. Your sanctification. He wants you to live a holy life. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, not like the Gentiles who don't know God. Don't live like people who don't even know God. Believers, we are to live free of sexual sin. We are to live a holy life. Back to Romans. He says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. The word function here is the Greek word krasis, which is a very well-established term for sexual intercourse. And that is exactly what he's talking about. They carry on a sexual activity contrary to the intention of the Creator. The word natural here is fusikos, and it means in keeping with how God designed things. An unnatural refers to behavior that is contrary to to the way God made things. In the Greek text, the word translated woman, phelous, and men are saying, are males and females. Paul's language here is the language of sex. All right? And he's saying homosexuality is an unnatural relationship to oneself and to one's body. And consequently, if we believe the words of Paul, it's contrary to God's order. This is the teaching of the whole of Scriptures. In other words, the Apostle says the relationship of heterosexuality is that which is normal and natural. And natural here means keeping with how God designed people. And unnatural refers to behavior that is contrary to how God made us. When man forsakes the author of nature, he forsakes the order of nature. Now, all right, let me say this, and... Uh, 
I'm willing to hear what you got to say in different opinion to what I believe here. And, and I don't mean to be cruel. I don't mean to say this to be mean. I just think this is the truth. I believe that the norm is for people to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. And when people are not, I think it is a defect. I think when people are sexually attracted to the same sex, there's a defect in them. There's something wrong with them. That's not how it's supposed to be. It is not fusikos. It is not normal. It is not natural. Now, is it a genetic defect? Is it a hormonal defect? You know, I think America is becoming feminized because of the food we're eating. There's so many hormones that guys don't even know what a guy is anymore. You know, and it's getting really sad. But what what it causes people to have attraction to the same sex? I don't know. Why do some people have a defect? I guess that's the way Yahweh made them. Alright? Because look at Exodus 4.11. Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute? Or deaf? Or seeing? Or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Charismatics would have a fit with this verse. Okay? You can't blame Yahweh for anything that's not good. But he says right here, Who makes men deaf? Or mute? Or seeing? Who does it? I do it. I do it. Listen, some people are born deaf. We know that, right? Some people are born blind. Some people are born with debilitating disease and deformity. Why? That's just how it is in life. Okay? People are born differently. It's not a sin to be attracted to the same sex. But it's a sin if you act on it. Now, I do believe that God can change people's hearts. But if he doesn't change the heart of a gay person and they are a Christian, then they have to live celibate. Now, to tell a man that he has to be celibate for his whole life is a pretty difficult task, I think. But my response is life's not easy. There's all kinds of people dealing with defects, all kinds of defects. Missing limbs, you know, constant pain, whatever else. You have to deal with it. So if you're, if you have an attraction to the same sex, I think it's a defect that you have. How you got it, I don't know. But you have to live with it. And the only way you live with that as a Christian is to be celibate. So what Paul is saying here is that because of their rejection of him, God has turned men over to the judgment of homosexuality. It's a judgment, according to Paul. And I think America is being judged. I think Rome was judged because of this. I think America's being judged by it. You know, our country was not, like I said, we're post-Christian culture. What times things were so different in this country. Now what's accepted is, is absolutely amazing because we're being turned over. Look at verse 27. In the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desires toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. The natural function of the woman. Men and woman go together. That's natural. But they're burning in their desires toward one another. Men with men. I am told that there is a level of lust among homosexuals homosexuals that is not known among heterosexuals. It is not unusual for the average homosexual male to have 300 partners a year. 
300 partners a year. And it's not uncommon for them to go to the hospital to have all kinds of articles removed from deep within them. Okay? In the book, Where Death Delights, the story of Dr. Milton Helpern and forensic medicine, chapter 13 explains why brutal multiple wound cases denote a homosexual murder. Dr. Helpern, who is the chief medical examiner for New York City, says, I did 60,000 autopsies, and I am not one to make a judgment on lifestyle, but I would warn anyone who chooses a homosexual lifestyle to get ready for the consequences. He said in 60,000 autopsies, now this is a medical examiner, like he said, he's, you know, he's, He's not some Christian that's nuts against homosexuals. He's just telling what he's seen. He says, in 60,000 autopsies, I can take one look at a corpse and tell you if it was killed by a homosexual because of the massive mutilation. You know, any study of the homosexual community shows a higher rate of suicide, a lower tolerance to disease and sickness, a shorter lifespan by 25 to 30 years, and the likelihood of infections and debilitating deadly disease, and the decreased likelihood of a stable, nurturing family life. There's a burning level of lust that is beyond anything that a heterosexual understands. And there are frequent murders and other crimes that go on that are beyond description. Now, you don't hear this from the news media. They're not going to talk about this stuff because they're busy promoting this like crazy. The commentator Scroggs, attempts to minimize Paul's negative remarks on homosexuality by arguing that he is simply drawing on a Hellenistic Jewish tradition that probably only pederasty is being condemned. Now, pederasty is from the Greek, and it means lover of boys. So they say, see, what Paul's talking about in Romans 1 is this thing where, where guys would go in you know, for boys. It is used of one who practices anal intercourse, especially with a boy. So that's what they say, Romans 1. But here's what's interesting to me about the text. Paul says, men with men. Maybe Paul is confused. Okay? See, the great lengths are gone to people to try to change the language of Scripture to make it fit. And you've got to really twist some things around. This is really strained exegesis that's unsupported by the Bible. They come up with some of these crazy things. Paul's not talking about pederasty. Contemporary homosexuals insist that these verses mean that it's perverse for a homosexual, or no, they, they say, this ver, what this verse is saying, that it's perverse for a heterosexual male or female to engage in homosexual relations. But it's not perverse for a homosexual male or female to do so because that's their natural preference. So it's not against nature because that's just their natural preference. It's only talking about this is wrong for, listen, you don't have to tell heterosexuals, this is wrong, okay? You don't need to be bothered telling them that's wrong. They know that, all right? The only natural sexual relationship the Bible recognizes is a heterosexual one within marriage. That's it. Paul condemns homosexual behavior in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor nor." idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. All right? And then, also in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.10, he says, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, the Greek word here translated in these verses as homosexual is arsenikoites. 
which is a compound word derived from arson, which means man, and koite, which means bed. All right, I've read many homosexuals on this, and they say, you know, this word really does mean men in bed, and it kind of fits, you know, homosexuals. Here's what's interesting about this word. Both of these words, or both these, this word is found in the Septuagint version. This word, arsenicoites, is found in the Septuagint version of Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 that say this, you shall not lie with the males, one lies with the female, it is an abomination. See, the homosexuals throw these verses out right away. That's the law, we're not under the law. That's exactly what they say, all right? Which, I understand that argument. All right, Leviticus 20.13 says, "Is there, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death, their blood guiltness upon them. All right, just kill them, he says. All right? <coughs> now, here's what's interesting. There are no instances of the word arsenicoites prior to Paul. All right, this is a word Paul invented. Even many revisionist scholars agree that Paul coined the term from Leviticus. All right, he's taking the term from here, from the Septuagint, and he's putting this word together. He's reiterating the holiness code from Leviticus. This is clearly tells us that arsenicoites referred to homosexual behavior and is being condemned. Quoting, pulling it from these passages in the Levitical law. Paul condemns it as sin. It is unrighteous behavior. Now, could a Christian be involved in homosexual sex? Believers, one thing you have to understand is Christians are not exempt from any sin. If you think you are, take heed lest you fall. Okay? I heard a person say, no homosexual can be in Christ. Really? Let me talk about that. All right? How about adulterers? Can they be in Christ? Well, yeah. How about, yeah. How about gluttons? Or liars? Or drunkards? Can they be in Christ? Well, sure, they can be in, but not homosexuals. Really? Well, let me say I've personally known two homosexuals, two Christians that were involved in homosexuality. One of them died of AIDS. The other one I counseled with, shared with them because they came to me and they said, what is the Bible, you know, so I said, we need to talk. So, you know, took them through the scriptures. He repented of the sin. Later got married, had kids involved in ministry serving Christ. All right. Now, the homosexual movement will tell you they can't change. You can't change people. God can change men's hearts. All right. And so in this instance, this man was confused and he got with the scripture. Okay. That's what the scripture says. Jerry Otterburn was a believer who got involved in homosexuality. He wrote a book called How Will I Tell My Mother? All right. Let me share some of the thoughts. He said in the book, he said, the first homosexual advance came at the church camp and the second at a church picnic. Does that make you a little bit sick, people? A little bit sick? You know, we are so into this uh, tolerance and making sure we don't offend anybody that we got, we, you know, we can't do an investigation on someone that wants to work with children and find out anything about them. That would offend them. Years ago, we had a couple come to the church. They had two kids. Found out he had been convicted of molesting children in the past. You know, he swore he, you know, he was over that. He repented. He was doing all right. Good. You're welcome here. Came to me and said, I'd like to teach Sunday school. 
I said, it'll never happen. What do you mean? Yeah, children's Sunday school. I said, it'll never happen. I'll never do anything with children in this church. And he got so offended. God has forgiven me. I said, that's great. God's forgiven a lot of alcoholics. I wouldn't ask him to tend bars. And you'll never work with children in this church as long as I'm here. So that's it. You know, you can get mad. You can do whatever you want. But, I mean, we have a responsibility, people. And it seems like we're too stupid to use common sense to protect, you know, children. You're going to put someone in working with children, know a little bit about the person before you stick them in there, you know. Because this is where homosexuals go. Boy Scouts? Or now they're endorsing the thing, you know. Or they go to a church because you can be with all these children and who's going to check you out? And, you know, churches just love so glad that glad to have, they're so glad to have someone that will work with children they don't care anything else, you know. It's sad. He says, the process of my conversion to a homosexual lifestyle didn't happen overnight. It was so gradual, I didn't even know it was happening. See, this is a man who wasn't prone you know, attracted to the opposite sex. He just got involved in this thing. He says, because in the beginning, I thought it was merely, I thought I was merely making new friends. It was the first time I felt truly accepted. See, that's the key here, people. The feeling of being accepted was overwhelming. That is the greatest drive of the human heart to be accepted. People will do anything to be accepted. And that's why, you know, this Facebook is causing problems today with kids. Because they post something and then they stare. How many likes did I get? I didn't get enough likes. Their, their self-esteem is destroyed because people don't like the crap they put on Facebook. It is sickening. It, it really is. It, is. it is. We're facing things in this society that no one else has ever faced because of electronics. And it's sad. I mean, these kids are staring at the screen, you know, and no one likes their thing. No one comments, so they're devastated. Because they want to be accepted. They want to be accepted. He says, that acceptance, more than any other aspect of the gay world, hooked me into the culture. He got involved in it. Now, Jerry repented of his homosexuality, and he later died of AIDS. All right? But, and he wrote this book, and the book is very informative. You know, I have the book. Interesting. So, my question is, how do we respond to homosexuals? How do we deal with this? When you see a homosexual, do you look down on them with contempt? You know, I think this is changing my thinking here. When I see someone that has a physical deformity, I don't look at him with contempt. I feel sorry. Well, this is, like I said, I think this is a defect. And I don't think, you know, to get involved in gay bashing, I mean, that's, why would you do that? You think these people say, I think I'll like someone of the same sex. Or do we say, there but the grace of God go I? Well, look what Yeshua taught. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. He's teaching us that we're to love our enemies. Now, this is completely radical teaching. This is powerful teaching about the inclusiveness of love. This kind of love that Yeshua advocates even embraces our enemies. Now, to those listening to Yeshua that day, this must have seemed like an impossibility. How could anyone ever love their enemies? Enemies don't invoke Love to anybody. You don't feel love for your enemies. Yeshua, however, wanted to make a point that he considered our neighbor to include our enemies. In other words, no one is outside the scope of our love or shouldn't be outside the scope of our love. We're called to manifest the love of Christ to anybody and everybody. What about Christians who are involved in homosexuality? 
All right, we're, we're talking about the lost. Our responsibility to the lost is to present the gospel. You don't go to a homosexual and condemn them because they're homosexual. They're sinners. They sin. You go to them with the presentation of the gospel. And listen, my perspective on this is you don't go down the street and look for somebody that looks gay and give them a track, okay? I really think, I believe totally in lifestyle evangelism. All right? I believe you need a connection with someone. You need to know them. When, when someone tries to tell me something, and I don't know them, I, I've never had contact with them. I had a man at a conference come up to me after I got done speaking and said, that was really good. Most of what you said I agree with. There's some things you're really off base on. If you want to understand that, let me know and I'll straighten you out. I thought, you're about the height of arrogance, and I'm not interested in you straightening me out on anything. He might have had something good to say to me. But I didn't know him. I'd never met him before in my life. I didn't know anything about him. So what do I care what he says? And I think the same thing with most people who are trying to evangelize. If, if it's just, just you're looking for a number on your gospel gun belt, i got to get another notch, you know. But if, if people genuinely feel that we care about them, that opens them up to hear what we have to say. If I know when, so, if I know when someone likes me, they care about me, I'm very interested in what they have to say. Because I have that contact. And I think, you know, this, I don't know where it came from, this idea of, you know, intrusion evangelism is what I call it. You butt into someone's life and, well, they need the gospel. They do, but they don't know you. You know, and it's easy to just go hand out tracts, but, you know, try building friendships. That's a lot harder. All right. What about Christians? How to respond to them? Well, Paul tells us. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Paul says, I don't want you to associate with immoral people, but I'm talking about in the church because you can't do that with worldly people. You'd have to leave the world. He goes on to say, I wrote you not to associate with a so-called brother if he's an immoral person. People, this is a horrible translation. It's not a translation. This is an interpretation. The the Greek does not say so-called brother. What's he implying? Not really a brother. He's just a so-called brother. All right? This is terribly biased of a translation. The text says, if any man that is named a brother. The if is a third-class condition in the Greek, a supposable case. All right, this... If he's a brother, and he probably is, all right, is the idea here. If he's named a brother, he probably is. That's the idea. But see, because of lordship theology, you can't have Christians living in sin, so therefore he's not really a Christian. He's a so-called Christian, all right? The phrase, not to associate with, is the translation of a Greek word which means to mingle together with them. It's found only here in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. We are not to socialize. We are not to eat. We are not to fellowship with Christians who are living in sin. Why? Because it's wrong for Christians to live in sin. And if Christians can live in sin in the fellowship, then why not sin? See, the fellowship is supposed to be a place where we come together, where we love and fellowship and care for one another. It's supposed to be something special. And if we put people out of that special fellowship because of their sin, that makes them think maybe I should deal with the sin. 
And I don't think fellowship is to be broken without confrontation. You've got to go to them. You've got to go through the process. Listen, you're wrong in what you're doing here. Believers, we are to be the conscience of society. We have to lovingly take a stand against sin. We've got to say what the Bible says. We have a moral obligation to teach the truth of God no matter what our society believes, no matter what our society says. So what do we do about the Supreme Court's decision on homosexual marriage? Well, number one, I think the church is called to do what it's always done. Seek to win the loss to Christ. You don't like the situation? The only thing that's going to change it is the gospel. Okay? That's it, people. That's the only thing that will ever change it. And and if we're going to be doing this, if we're trying to win the lost, condemning people is a terrible evangelism strategy. Okay? Yeah. Turn or burn. That's not the gospel, people. Not even close. Okay? Turn from what? Burn from where? You know, that's just, you know, that is so... I don't know, self-righteous, you know, coming across that you're better than anybody else and you're just going to condemn them. I don't see how you condemn people. It's not a good strategy for anything, okay? Usually when people are condemned, what's the di- they put up a resistance, right? Because no one likes being condemned. So it's just a resistance there. So that's not a good evangelism strategy. Paul told us to stop judging people outside the church. Christians don't seem to get this. Look, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? They're not part of the church. Why are you judging them? Do you not judge those who are within the church? See, that's where our judgment, authority is within the church. But those who are outside, God judges. They're not under the church's jurisdiction. We don't have a right to judge them. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Talking about that, the church's job is to judge sin in the church. So what do we do about the Supreme Court's decision number one? I think our calling is the same as it's always been. We're seeking to win the loss. You know, this, this ruling doesn't change anything as far as that's concerned. And secondly, here's something I think we have to understand. Don't look to government to support Christian values. I mean, I just think that's foolish. You know, you think they're going to do that? Don't waste your time, you know, trying to change men who are pagans. Politically, listen, Yeshua, Paul, Peter, John, they spent zero time trying to change the government. You know, Paul often appeared before government officials. I can't find one time when he says, Felix, you know what? This policy you got is really bad. I really wish you would do something to change this. No, I didn't see that anywhere. Okay? What he did, he presented the gospel. Put the gospel to them. That's all he did. He didn't try to change to get the laws of the land changed. Speaking of government, let me throw this in here. Democrats in California have introduced a bill that would ban the words husband and wife being used in federal law because they're gendered terms and they discriminate against gay people. The words husband and wife were deleted from California state law last year. Under new legislation proposed by over two dozen Democrats, the same rule would be applied federally. The bill introduced by Representative Lewis Capps, a Democrat from California, would introduce new gender-neutral terms, such as spouse or married couple, and eliminate 
husband and wife. This just shows you the power of the homosexual movement. Okay? I mean, they are getting things done because they're organized, they're committed. You know, if Christians had the, you know, the zeal that these guys did, I think we could make a difference in our country. But this is where our culture is headed, people. It's not going to get better, but it's okay because Christianity has always been countercultural. And listen, it's not laws that need to change. It is the heart of man that needs to change. And the only thing that will change that is the gospel of Yeshua the Christ. So let's make sure, people, that our beliefs, that the things we stand on are based on Scripture and not society saying we have to believe this or we have to believe that. We've got to be locked into the Scripture and be very careful for people trying to twist the Scripture. You know, when I see someone telling me that the Bible, Romans 1, does not talk about homosexuality, my first question is, are you homosexual? Because then I know you got an agenda here, okay? You're trying to make that line up with what you want it to say. And I understand that, but it's wrong. All right, people, the church is called to be countercultural, but we are called to influence the culture by lovingly presenting the gospel of Yeshua the Christ. That's our calling, people. And no matter what happens in this country, our calling doesn't change. We've got to seek to win the laws. I don't care what laws government puts out, we keep seeking. When the, when the, make it a law that you're not allowed to be a Christian, then we keep going on like Solomon we heard about today in the Voice of the Martyrs, and we just suffer the consequences for it. We continue to put the gospel forth. And people, you know, that Supreme Court decision, it really shouldn't have surprised or shocked anybody. You know, why would you expect government to support Christian values? They're not going to. So don't be shocked. Just keep doing what we're doing. Because Yahweh always has a remnant. And that remnant is always called to have an influence on the culture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray I handle it accurately and carefully. Father, I don't have animosity towards people who are homosexual. I pray that we'd be able to share the gospel with them. Tell them how you change men's hearts. For those people who are Christians, Lord, and involved in homosexuality or any sin, Lord, I pray we'd be lovingly confronting them. This is not what Yahweh has called us to. We are called to sanctification. We are called to holiness, to honor our God by our lives. Father, give us a heart to honor you above all we do. Amen.